Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Ni'ima Novetsky, and today we will be looking at Vayikra Perek Yutchet, Chapter 18, which speaks about the laws of prohibited sexual relations. As we mentioned in our last class, our chapter begins the second half of the book, whose main focus is Kedusha, or holiness. If the first half of the book centered on the Mikdash and how to serve Hashem inside, this half of the book moves outside teaching us how to infuse all aspects of life with sacredness. Chapters 18 through 20 open the unit by addressing the nation as a whole, discussing varied interpersonal laws from sexual relations to honest business dealings and caring for the unfortunate. Chapters 21 and 22 then move to one specific subset of the people, the priestly class, speaking of their unique laws of mourning, marriage, and blemishes. Finally, Chapters 23 through 25 turn to speak of the holiness of time and land as they discuss the various holidays and the sabbatical and jubilee years. Together then, this half of the book covers holiness of people, time, and place, suggesting that each and every one of these can and should be sanctified. Our chapter opens a unit with laws meant to ensure the holiness of our relationships and sexual acts. We'll begin with an overview of the chapter as a whole, and then move to discuss its details. The chapter divides neatly and into, into an introduction in verses 1 through 5, which warns the nation not to follow the lifestyle and customs of the Egyptians and Canaanites, a main body in verses 6 through 23, which lists the prohibited sexual acts, and a conclusion which reiterates the message of the introduction, warning the nation not to defile themselves as had the previous owners of Canaan, lest they, like the Canaanites, be purged from the land. The prohibited sexual acts listed in the main body can be split into two groups, those which stem from the prohibited woman's being a, re- being a relative to the male, either through blood or marriage, and those who are prohibited for other reasons. Let's start by delving into the chapter's introduction. Interestingly, though the main body of the chapter is essentially just a list, and from a literary perspective at least, somewhat dry and technical, the introduction is poetic and almost festive to the extent that it even feels a bit out of place in the middle of a legal unit. The verses begin by Hashem telling Moshe to address the nation. And Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to B'nai Israel." Now the poetic part begins. As we read, note the refrains and the parallelisms, sure markers of biblical poetry. Hashem says, Ani Hashem Elokechem, Kimase Eretz Mitzrayim Asheri Shaftemba, Lo Taasu, Ochimase Eretz Kenan Asher Anime Vietram Shama, Lo Taasu, Ubehokotem, Lo Telecho. Hashem warned against following the customs of the land of Egypt, where Israel had just lived, and against following the customs of the land of Kenan, where Hashem is bringing them to live. At Mishpatai Taasu, Bet Hukotai Tishmuru Lalachat Behem. Ani Hashem Elokechem. Ushmartem et chukotai ve'en mishpatai, asher ya'aseo tam ha'adam v'chai behem. Ani Hashem. Rather, Hashem commands, we must follow His laws and statutes. We should observe these laws and keep these statutes and live by them. I am God. Even with just a quick read, the high literary style is obvious. The passage opens with Hashem introducing Himself. Ani Hashem Elokechem. He repeats this again in verse 3, and then in verse 5, he closes with a shorter variation, Ani Hashem, forming an inclusio which encases the unit. 
The passage is full of both straight and inverse parallels. We are told in the same language both not to act like Egypt and not to act like Canaan. Kimasei Eretz Mitzrayim lo ta'asu and Kimasei Eretz Canaan lo ta'asu. We should not behave like the people Asher Yishaftemba, whom we have lived among, nor like the people Asher Animeviet Chamshama, those whom we will live among. Finally, Hashem contrasts Uvechukoteim lo telechu, not to follow their customs, with the opposite positive command that Chukotai Tishmeru lalachat behem, my customs you should observe to follow. Again, the two verses echo each other, using the same language to express both what not to do and what we should do instead. This short introduction raises three interconnected questions. First of all, what do these verses serve as an introduction to? Are they a prologue to our chapter specifically, introducing the laws of prohibited relations? In which case we wonder, what is so special about our unit that it merits a unique prologue? And why the special style? Or, might the verses serve as an introduction to all that is to come in Sefer Vayikra? After all, as we pointed out earlier, our chapter begins the second half of the book, and perhaps these verses serve to introduce it as a whole. In the same vein, when the verses speak about observing Hashem's chukim and mishpatim, which laws are they referring to? To the laws of sexual prohibitions, or to laws in general? And finally, why does Hashem single out the Canaanite and Egyptian practices? Is he referring specifically to their sexual practices or to their lifestyle as a whole? Either way, what is unique about them? Were they sexually more depraved than anyone else? Was their general lifestyle worse than that of any other ancient nation? Rashi reads the unit as being a general introduction. According to him, when Hashem warns against learning from the practices of the Canaanites and Egyptians, and commands us not to follow in their customs. He's referring not only to their sexual practices, but also to these nations' social customs. As examples, he points to their setting up of circuses and gladiator stadiums, and also to their superstitious practices. The Rambam goes a step further and suggests that we are being commanded not to imitate even their dress and hairstyles. According to Rashi, the Canaanites and Egyptians are singled out because they really are more corrupt as a whole than others. However, one could suggest instead that they are singled out not because they were necessarily so much worse than anyone else living in the ancient pagan world, but because they would have been the biggest influence on the Israelites. The Egyptians, because, because it is their lifestyle whom the nation was most familiar with, having lived among them for hundreds of years. And the Canaanites, because they were about to become Israel's new neighbors, and it would be natural to adopt aspects of their lifestyle. We're always more influenced by those who are close to us. According to this reading, then, the verses we read before serve as an introduction to the entire second half of the book, to all of the laws dealing with Kiddushah, a word which, though it is often translated as holiness, might more correctly be translated as sanctification and separation. Hashem tells us that to be a secret nation, we must first set ourselves apart and separate from surrounding cultures and influences. It's not enough, though, to simply be sur meira, to leave the evil. One must also be asetov, to do good. And so Hashem tells the nation that instead of following these corrupt customs, they must follow Hashem's laws, both his chukim and his mishpatim, which according to Rashi, 
again, are not limited to sexual practices, but encompass all the laws of Torah. Mishpatim referred to those laws which are logical and self-explanatory, laws that would have likely been instituted in any society, even had the Torah not stated them. Chukim, on the other hand, are dvarim shehen gzerat melech, decrees of a king, laws like not wearing wool and linen together, or the purification process of the red heifer, which a society on their own would likely never have formulated, and whose reasoning and utility is not necessarily self-evident. Not all agree with Rashi, however, and other commentators suggest that our introductory verses are more limited in scope, and that they really serve to introduce only the laws of prohibited relations, the focus of our chapter. The lofty style of the introduction serves to highlight the importance that Torah grants these laws. According to these commentators, the Canaanites and Egyptians are singled out because both are unique in the depths of their sexual depravity specifically. One of the earliest stories of sexual immorality in Tanakh relates to Ham, the son of Noah, and significantly, the father of both Canaan and Mitzrayim. The verses share how when Noah was lying in a drunken stupor, Vayar Ham avi Chanan et Arvat Aviv, literally, and Ham saw the nakedness of his father. At first glance, one might think that this is not a terrible crime. After all, he simply saw his father unclothed, and if so, this story is not indicative of heinous, immoral sexual practices. However, it's highly likely that the term Riyat Erva, seeing nakedness, is actually just a variation of the term Yiloi Ariyot, revelation of nakedness, which is mentioned throughout our chapter, and which tends to mean a sexual act. And as such, it seems that the story in Breshit refers not to Ham simply seeing his father uncovered, but his engaging in some sort of sexual action. According to some exegetes, he sodomized Noah. According to others, he slept with Noah's wife. For as we'll see in just a moment when we read verse 7, uncovering your father's nakedness is a euphemism for sleeping with your mother. Either way, Sefer Breshit then already sets up the line of Ham with Canaan and Egypt, his descendants, as being models of sexual immorality. From ancient Near Eastern history as well, we know that it was common practice in Egypt for kings to marry their sisters, one of the prohibited relations mentioned later in our chapter. As such, it's understandable why these two countries specifically are mentioned in our introduction. Hashem commands that in contrast to the licentious ways of these cultures, we should follow the mishpatim and chukim of sexual relations laid forth by Hashem. This statement would suggest that the laws of Arayot, prohibited sexual relations, somehow fall under the category of both a chok and a mishpat. Taking Rashi's understanding of the two terms, this would suggest that certain aspects of the laws are self-evident, while others are not. And in truth, in almost every society, there are certain sexual taboos that are somewhat agreed upon. For example, not having relations with a parent. Nonetheless, sexual norms do differ greatly from culture to culture, and what's acceptable in one might not be in another. Even when reviewing the list of prohibited relations in our chapter, it is not so clear why certain acts made their way to the list, while other similar ones did not. For example, as we'll soon see, while a man may not sleep with his aunt, the inverse is not true, for a man can marry his niece. So it seems that yes, maybe the laws of sexual prohibitions are simultaneously both mishpatim, 
laws whose reasoning is somewhat self-evident, and chukim, those which are not so self-evident. Rav David Tzvi Hoffman raises a different possible understanding of the difference between chukim and mishpatim, suggesting that mishpatim refers to laws which govern interpersonal relations, while chukim refer to obligations which man has towards himself, towards God, or in relationship to nature. If the laws of prohibited relations relate to both categories, as seems to be implied by our verses, this would, this would suggest that they are prohibited not just because of how they affect the other, but also because somehow they affect an individual's own essence, that they affect how he relates to God, and perhaps because they are harmful to nature as a whole. We'll come back to these ideas as we explore various understandings of the specific prohibitions in our, in our chapter in the next year. First, though, let's look at the verses inside to see what exactly is prohibited. As we mentioned before, the list of prohibited relations splits into two groups, those which are off limits due to the fact that the man and woman are, quote, of the same flesh. The woman is She'er Bisaro, a close relative, either through blood or marriage, and others which are prohibited for other assorted reasons. Let's begin by looking at the first category which takes us from verse 6 through 16. Pasuk Vav itself introduces the category. Ish ish akol she'er bisaro lotikravu ligalot erva ani Hashem. Any man to any kin of his flesh, you shall not come near to expose their nakedness. I am Hashem. The list then proceeds more or less in accordance with the degree of closeness. Verse 7 prohibits relations with one's mother. Ervat avich. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, nor the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Interestingly, sleeping with one's mother is referred to as revealing the nakedness of both your mother and your father. Perhaps, once the two are married and become one flesh, there's no distinguishing between the two. Verse 8 continues, Ervat eshet avicha, ervat eshet ervat avicha hi. The verse prohibits relations with your father's wife, in other words, your stepmother. If a woman married your father, even if she is not your biological mother, it is prohibited to have relations with her. Verse 9 then speaks of sisters. Ervat achotcha vat avicha, ovat imecha, moledet bayit o moledet chutz, ervatan. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or born outside. It's noteworthy that the verse appears to speak of only a half-sister, either from your father or your mother, without mentioning a full sister. Even though one might conclude that this must be prohibited by a kalva homer, by a priori argument, if a half-sister is off-limits, then obviously so is a full sibling, still, the absence of an explicit prohibition is somewhat perplexing. The meaning of the phrase later in the verse, moledet bayit or moledet chutz, is debated. Ibn Ezra and many others suggest that the verse is saying that relations with a half-sister is prohibited whether the sibling is born from a legitimate union, moledet bayit, literally born of home, or an illegitimate one, such as a rape or the like, moledet chutz, literally born outside. According to others, though, the phrases are not referring to the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the union at all, rather 
molded by it, literally born of home, is simply another way of referring to a half-sibling uh, half from the father, as a child would naturally have been born and raised in the father's house, while molded chutz, literally born outside, speaks of a half-sibling from your mother, born to a different husband, who would naturally have been born out of the house. After all, at the time of the birth, the woman would have been living in her then-husband's home, and not this one. Verse 10 moved to a second degree of distance, speaking of grandchildren. Ervat bat bincha ovat bitcha botigale ervatan, kervatrahina. Do not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for it is your nakedness. Interestingly, as we saw in the case of sisters, here too, though a grandchild is mentioned, the verses never explicitly state not to have relations with one's own children. Perhaps this is simply obvious. Or as we said before, perhaps it's meant to be learned from a priori argument from the prohibition regarding grandchildren. Verse 11 then moves back to siblings. Ervat bat eshet avicha, moletet avicha, achotchahi, botigale ervata. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter conceived by your father, since she is your sister. This verse is somewhat difficult, as it seems to introduce nothing new considering that verse 9 already prohibited your sister. One possible explanation, attributed by Ibn Ezra to the Sadducees, suggests that the verse refers not to a half-sibling, but to a step-sibling, someone who is the daughter of your father's wife, but from a different husband. She is referred to as Moledet Avicha only because she grew up in your father's house and was raised by him, not because she was born to him. This would explain why the prohibition is further down the list, as the relationship is not as close. This reading, though, is rejected by the halakha, and from a textual perspective, is somewhat difficult, as the wording of moletet avicha would seem to mean that she is born to your father himself, and not simply raised by him. This might be what prompts Ibn Ezra to alternatively suggest that the, reverse, that the verse refers to a full sister, the prohibited relationship that we noted was absent from our earlier verse. However, this too is somewhat difficult, for the verse appears to be stressing that the sister is specifically bat eshet avicha, Moledet Avicha, the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father, a sibling from one side only. Which leads to one final possibility raised by Ibn Ezra, that the verse really is not introducing anything new, and that the repetition is simply for emphasis. Since before Matan Torah, people did have relations with half-sisters, the new prohibition needed to be stressed. Verses 12 and 13 move to prohibit ants, whether a sister of your father or your mother. Ervat achot avicha lo tigale, she'er avichahi. Ervat achot imcha lo tigale, ki she'er imchahi. Verse 14 then prohibits even an aunt who is not a blood relative, but only through marriage. Ervat achi avicha lo tigale. Sorry, ervat achi avicha lo tigale, el ishto lo tikrav, dodatchahi. The wife of your uncle, your father's brother, is also off limits. Though not a blood relative, she is still your aunt. We end the section with two other non-blood relatives. Ervat kalatcha lo tigale, eshet binchahi lo tigale ervata. Ervat eshet achicha lo tigale, ervat achichahi. One may not sleep with one's daughter-in-law, nor with one's sister-in-law, the wife of your brother. So to quickly summarize the list, it's prohibited to have relations with one, both one's mother and one's father's wife, in other words, your mother and your stepmother, two, your half-sister, whether from your mother or your father, 
and likely, though not explicit in the verses, your full sister. Three, your granddaughter, and presumably, though again not explicit in the verses, your daughter. Four, your aunt, whether the sister of your father, the sister of your mother, and also an aunt only through marriage, the wife of your father's brother. Five, your daughter-in-law. And six, your sister-in-law, the wife of your brother. So on the whole, as we mentioned, the list moves from relatives with just one degree of separation, a parent or a sibling, to those with two degrees of separation, a grandchild or aunt, and finally, to those who are only related through marriage. All the prohibitions are worded from the perspective of the male, prohibiting him from having relations with the various females. This, though, does not mean that the prohibition falls only upon him. He is simply highlighted since he is the active party in the deed. From the punishments listed in Chapter 20 for these offenses, it becomes obvious that both parties are held culpable for the relationship. So just as a son cannot have relations with his mother, a mother cannot have relations with her son. Both will be equally punished with death. What, though, about the symmetric or mirror image relationships, meaning... If a man is not allowed to have relations with his granddaughter, does that imply that a woman can also not have relations with her grandson? Or, worded from the perspective of the male, are relations with a grandmother off-limits just as relations with a granddaughter are? Another example, if a man cannot have relations with his aunt, does that mean that a woman similarly can ha have relations with her uncle? Or again, worded from the perspective of the male, does the prohibition against sleeping with one's aunt also imply that it is prohibited to sleep with one's niece? On one hand, it would seem that since these relationships are somewhat equivalent to those listed, as we simply switched the male and female parties, perhaps they too should be prohibited. On the other hand, it's not necessarily obvious that we should view having relations with your aunt in the same manner as we view having relations with your niece. Or, for an example not from our list, that if a husband is allowed to have multiple wives, that a woman should be allowed to have multiple husbands. This question is a point of dispute between rabbinic Judaism and certain sectarian groups. While Chazal do not learn out any prohibitions from the symmetric relationships, the Dead Sea or Qumran sect and the Karaites do. Thus, in Megillat Brit Damesek, one of the Dead Sea legal scrolls, we read, The laws of sexual prohibitions are written to the males, but the same applies to females. This, let, this then leads them to conclude, as Megillat HaMikdash, another Dead Sea Scroll, states, Lo yikach ish et bat achihu o et bat achoto, kitoi vahi. A man cannot marry the daughter of his brother or sister, for it, is an, for it is an abomination. So while rabbinic Judaism has no problem with a man marrying his nieces, these sects do. These differences obviously impact the scope of the prohibitions and might reflect differences among the various groups in their outlook on sexual activity. The Qumran sect is known for being particularly, particularly strict in this area, looking down upon sex which is not for the purposes of, of procreation and the like. So it is perhaps not surprising that they suggest that more prohibitions can be learned from the verses than do Chazal. In our next year, we'll explore the second group of prohibited unions and then discuss various understandings of the laws as a whole.